Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining me is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow uh, at the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Sam, uh, welcome back to the program and hope you guys had a terrific weekend. Thank you very much. I uh, hope you had a good weekend as well. Uh, it was uh, it was great as we uh, head into Thanksgiving, uh, so very excited about that. Uh, before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Sam, uh, another uh, fascinating week in this war, so the battlefield may be stalemated, but Ukraine is still finding ways uh, to strike at Russia, and this week, uh, this weekend again, struck uh, Moscow. Tell us what was special about this attack, because uh, it has a lot of people scratching their heads, including you. Yeah, this was another long-range UAV attack on Moscow. Uh, the UAV was shut down somewhere in the Moscow suburbs, but the Russian commentators are actually saying that the attack came from the east or from eastward direction, not necessarily from the west or southwest um, as before. Um, they also noticed that some of the key attacks on Moscow, including the one on the Kremlin, earlier also came from the east. So we're talking about advanced UAV capabilities by the Ukrainians. We're talking about long-range capabilities. Perhaps there's even a speculation that the drone may have been launched from inside Russia proper uh, and assembled inside Russia and launched on Moscow. Once again, um, Moscow is now a heavily defended city against UAV attacks, but I think Moscow expects most of these attacks to come from the westward direction where Ukraine is located. The fact that they're coming from the east is quite puzzling and also worrying, I no doubt, to many in the Russian government. Uh, and uh, what are the systems the Russians are using to shoot them down really quickly, just so the audience can orient itself as to what type of vehicle, air vehicles these are, what kind of range they have? Right. I mean, you could be attacking the Kremlin with digis uh, or you could be attacking them with something more substantial. Talk to us about the air vehicle the Ukrainians are using as well as what the Russians are using to uh, defeat them. Right. It's unclear right now which specific vehicle is used. But earlier, Ukrainians launched their long range Bobber and UJ-22 UAVs. These have a range of up to a thousand kilometers. Uh, incidentally, over the weekend and last week, Ukrainian defense officials were saying that they are now manufacturing a Russian equivalent uh, of a Shahed-136. And this Ukrainian drone, which probably will have uh, either the same shape or the same flight characteristics, uh, is now manufactured in large numbers a month and also will have a range of about a thousand kilometers. And so uh, it is very likely that Ukraine will, again, in in intensify such strikes against Russia. Mostly, Russians are using Panzer S-1 air defense system. It has proven resilient enough against different types of drones, but also there's different types of air defense guns and weapons that are located in different parts of Moscow, especially in the suburbs on approach to the city. Uh, Russians are also probably using small arms fire and large, uh, heavy uh, caliber machine guns as well to handle different types of UAV threats. I mean, shouldn't the Russians be particularly worried if the Ukrainians are managing to launch to, you know, set up launch facilities within Russia? 
from which to attack Moscow? Well, it's not exactly known uh, how it was launched. That's definitely one of the ideas. But Russians do know that Ukrainian special forces and Ukrainian allies are possibly operating inside Russia proper. And so, yes, it is a very worrying development, but it's not the one that they can deal with easily. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, the overall uh, war and how it's going, because I want to go to two uh, interesting information uh, warfare uh, related as well as sanctions related uh, activities. Where are we on this war, right? We, we've talked a lot about Avdivka. Uh, there's a universal acknowledgement. Uh, I spoke to some senior military leaders last week, and they said, look, I mean, unfortunately, it's a stalemate. Uh, they, But they still need our help. Uh, so we're stalemated while there looks like there's a weakening of support for Ukraine. Uh, you know, where, where do we stand both on the military campaign, but also your sense about the staying power of the Western alliance? Because this is exactly what Putin has been counting on, the West to get tired, and he eventually prevails. I mean, he's building up his capability rather dramatically. Well, the military campaign hasn't changed much, as you remarked. It is more or less of a stalemate, as acknowledged by Ukrainian defense officials and acknowledged in the West. The Russians are pouring a lot of resources into the Avdiivka battle. They think they can uh, conduct a pincer movement and surround Ukrainian forces there and score a significant victory. But Ukrainians are defending um, and they are protecting themselves. Both sides are complaining about the other side's mass scale use of different types of UAVs, including FPVs. Uh, this has become a go-to tactical weapon, which makes any specific movement, any open movement of forces or equipment very difficult and very dangerous. But the battle is still ongoing. As far as Western aid, what the Ukrainians are now saying and what we're seeing in Western analysis is that Ukrainians want to be trained and use the weapons the way they fight. And so they want to kind of shift the weapons deliveries and the training to correspond with the tactical battlefield reality that they're facing. Um, as opposed to just receive different types of weapons on a training and delivery schedule as established by the West. And so even if politically there are some issues with how Ukraine war is supported, again, on the, at the tactical ground level, it's all about how Ukrainians trained and it's all about how Western aid is delivered to correspond to the Ukrainian military reality. And if there is a match, then the Ukrainians can hold on for quite a while. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the sanctions uh, activity that we've seen uh, recently, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's great that we continue to adjust them. Uh, the uh, United States has sanctioned a Russian NVO, NGO, uh, Vietje, uh, which is uh, playing a key role in the front. And uh, the European Union has sanctioned Rogozin's uh, SARS Wolves uh, organization that makes the marker unmanned ground vehicle. Talk to us about both of these and what impact they're likely to have or not. Well, last year and this year, we mentioned uh, on a regular basis the role of Russian volunteer organizations in fundraising for weapons, supplies, for procuring key technologies like uh, quadcopters, for assembling FPV drones in huge numbers, for delivering a lot of items that Russian military lacks or needs, anything from, again, thermal underwear to weapons to even trucks and military vans. And one of the biggest such organizations in Russia is Vecha. It raises a lot of money using cryptocurrency. And just recently, U.S. Treasury sanctioned Vecha as the first Russian NGO to be under U.S. sanctions for using cryptocurrency to raise funds for such support. For its part, European Union is now drafting a, um, a set of sanctions. And uh, Dmitry Rogozins, who is a former head of uh, 
Russian space agency who has refashioned himself into this tactical battlefield commander and who until recently has led another large volunteer-backed and maybe even government-backed effort called SARS Wolves or Wolves of the SARS. Uh, his effort, uh, again, fundraised uh, for a lot of supplies. They built a lot of UAVs. They built a lot of technologies. And for some reason, uh, Russia's key um, defense enterprise called Android Technologies that manufactures robotics has transferred to him several marker on manned ground vehicles for combat testing in Ukraine. Uh, those news date back to February and March, and we talked about it in your um, in your podcast, but we haven't seen any follow-up yet. But the fact that these large organizations are now getting sanctioned uh, speaks to their imp- to the actual impact they have in society, in war, and of course on the supply chains. Um, some of these organizations probably now have government backing, government funding. It isn't just regular Russian citizens who are donating money via cryptocurrency or other means. So I think it's a it's a significant development, and it is likely that other organizations that also have a fairly large footprint on supplying the Russian military with all kinds of aid may also be sanctioned at some point in the future. And Sam, do we have any idea whether or not these sanctions are having a material impact on Russia and its ability to wage war? Well, some sanctions are, are definitely having an ability. They try to disrupt uh, key supply chains and uh, they make it difficult for all kinds of parties and countries to deal with Russian uh, companies directly or via subsidiaries or via LLCs or shell companies. But it's a difficult process. It's a whack-a-mole in many ways. Again, and as we have discussed many times, for every major expose in the Western media of such efforts, there are others that are probably uh, still in existence and will continue to operate. So it's um, it's a continuous work for the U.S. Treasury Department and for European Union and for U.S. allies and partners. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, an award uh, that Russia has given uh, to a social media site. Uh, tell us a little bit about why, what Rebar is, uh, and why it uh, was uh, recognized uh, the way it was. Well, we always talk about the Russian information environment, and I always bring up the Telegram uh, channels managed by Russian volunteers and military correspondents and, um, and bloggers and a lot of volunteers, essentially, who um, record what's going on in Ukraine, who discuss what's happening to the Russian military, who post a lot of commentary analysis, videos, imagery. In fact, a lot of um, FPV videos and drone videos are often posted on Telegram, on all all kinds of channels. Those uh, channels also exist in the Ukrainian information space. But several Russian Telegram channels have emerged as key information sources. And one of them is Rebar. It's kind of a play on words on uh, Rybak or, or Fisherman. And um, Rebar has over 1.2 million subscribers on his Telegram channel. So it is a significant source of information. Last year, many Russian telegram channels, or Russian language telegram channels, were openly critical of the war. They were discussing the failures of the Russian military in Ukraine. They were discussing the pitfalls, issues that have to be addressed. And many Russian people actually turned to these telegram channels as an alternative to uh, a very stale and predictable state media. In fact, many of these state, excuse me, um, many of these telegram channels openly criticize state media and especially Russian Ministry of Defense media for lying to the people. And of course, fast forward to 2023, many of these channels have gained prominence and they cannot exist outside of the official Russian information space and the 
and outside of the official Russian information narrative. There cannot be a competition to the likes of TASS or RIA Novosti or Izvestia or many others on what is going on in Ukraine. And so ultimately, these uh, telegram channels would have to be co-opted one way or another. And so Rebar is the latest channel to be co-opted. Um, the founder, one of the two founders, rather, of that channel received an award from Putin for services to the fatherland. And now Rebar went from essentially offering what could have been an actual objective analysis of the war in Ukraine to uh, a distinctly pro-Kremlin analysis. Rebar doesn't just post um, commentary and videos. They post very detailed maps uh, and graphs and charts, that, uh, and charts. They cover other crises around the world, like uh, Israel-Hamas war. They cover wars in Africa and other major conflicts. Uh, Rebar has a staff of up to 30 people right now. So it's not just a one person or even two or three person organization. It is an actual significant uh, media enterprise. They have a website outside of Telegram where they post a lot of information and analysis, uh, which is backed by a lot of um, uh, other supporting media. So again, this is a very significant source of information with a lot of influence. And it was, of course, co-opted by the Kremlin for it cannot exist outside of the official narrative. Sam, thanks so very much for uh, joining us. Hope you and yours have a terrific Thanksgiving and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you and the same to you. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And as it's Monday, joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us and I hope you guys had a terrific weekend. It was great, Fago, and this show is the highlight of my Monday. Uh, indeed, it is. It is a highlight of my week uh, as well to be uh, talking uh, to you and, and uh, benefiting from your uh, insights. I want to uh, start uh, with uh, the budget deal that will keep the government open in various capacities from the middle of January to the end of January, uh, depending on the government uh, department. Uh, that uh, Speaker Johnson uh, managed to engineer a bipartisan uh, measure. And we talked a little bit about that uh, on Friday's show, about what that means for the future. I just wanted to get your sense. How how are you looking at where we are, where we're going, and what, what it all means for the National Defense Appropriation Act, this uh, Authorization Act, as well as appropriations? I mean, it really didn't change any of my thinking. Um, you know, I, I always thought the drama around a shutdown, you know, it, it makes headlines, but even if we had a shutdown, I was just extremely skeptical that Congress would be willing to miss a federal payday, uh, both for civil servants and for, for people serving in the military. That next payday was going to be November 30th. So even if we had a shutdown, I think it would have been more cosmetic, you know, that that you would have eventually gotten the continuing resolution. Um I don't think the two-step process in any way, shape, or form resolves <clears throat> the very deep differences between the House and Senate appropriations bills. And I haven't seen anything <clears throat> that really suggests how those bills, how those differences are going to get resolved as we move into January or February. Now, I would hope that <clears throat> there can be some change in agreement. Um, but, you know, when you, you had a, a deal... Uh, with the Fiscal Responsibility Act and then the House start marking bills to levels below the appropriations that were agreed to, you know, there, there's kind of a um, Lucy taking the football moment here that I think um, 
the Senate and maybe Democrats in the House are going to be leery of. So I'm still, uh, I still think people have to consider a scenario where we really do see lengthier CRs and the cuts that are mandated by the Fiscal Responsibility Act are triggered. I'm not willing to say that that's the most likely outcome at this point. I'd give that marginal odds, but um, you know, like 50% to 40% uh, that, that FY24 appropriations are uh, passed in line with the administration's request. You know, the other thing, you know, some of the news over the weekend out of the Halifax Security Forum on the supplemental spending package, you know, that, that, that did not sound like there's as much as there was a desire to get this done by December, the end of December, you know, there, there's some still pretty big hurdles on border security and how that's going to get linked. So, um, you know, bottom line, the supplemental, the, the continuing resolution and the news flow on supplementals didn't change my views at all. Um, and, uh, you know, Halifax is a terrific, uh, terrific event. And I commend folks to go and, and check on not just the coverage, but also some of the thoughtful uh, discussions with U.S. and international uh, uh, officials. Uh, Senators Shaheen and Rish are regulars there as well and always uh, great uh, hearing their thoughts. Uh, and our program tomorrow is going to be uh, a Halifax, uh, our annual Halifax Roundup, uh, even though it's an event we sort of intermittently cover over the course of the year. Um, let me take you uh to ape uh, just very quickly i mean do you do you get a sense i mean we you know the concern is that support for Hal uh support for ukraine is flagging um and one of the reasons why the halifax forum was laser focused on ukraine uh as uh, sort of the big issue from your standpoint do you see support for ukraine flagging and and what does that mean for vladimir putin's i'll wait you all out strategy well, it would seem to validate it, yeah. wouldn't it? I mean, it would seem to validate it. I don't know if that, that's going to show up in the polls, but, uh, you know, just the fact that, you know, none of this got tied to even, even a bridged amount just to kind of keep um, some money flowing for Ukraine. Nothing was included in the CR. And so that was another signal that um, I, I I worry about that. And, um, and I think... You know, there was a group of uh, think tank people who had been visiting Ukraine, um, uh, Michael Kaufman, Rob Lee, um, people from IISS and Rokan Consulting. And I mean, just seeing or reading some of their, uh, you know, kind of after action reviews from that visit, um, you know, it's not going real well for the Ukrainians uh, at this point. And I think there, there should really be some, some very profound concerns about what happens this winter if Russia really able to amount um, air and missile strikes at scale on Ukraine's um, you know, energy uh, right. infrastructure and power grid, their commodities, uh, you know, export points. Um, and, you know, just the simple fact that, um, you know, <laughs> Ukraine did not achieve its objectives in 2023, you know, kind of the setup for 2024 could really be more problematic. And, and I still think, you know, Europe can fill in some of these gaps, but not all of them. So um, I keep an eye on that, too. Um, let me uh, go to the other side of the planet. Uh, we had APEC uh, last week, and obviously the highlight of APEC was the meeting that President Biden had uh, with China's Xi Jinping. Um, what's were what were your takeaways from that? Well, I think optical you know, and otherwise. Yeah, the, the the you know the the expectations were pretty 
low key going into it. I, I think the most significant was just the simple fact that you got, you know, military to military communications um, restored and that, you know, marginally, um, you know, does that mean, a, a you know, a, a big about face in the competition with China? No. Um, but does it mean that you might be able to manage these tensions a little bit more effectively? And I think just the simple fact that the meeting took place, um, you know, will it change the vector of defense spending on either side of the Pacific? No. Um, does it mean maybe that, uh, you know, at the margin, the Davidson window is less likely to be opened or closed or however you want to play with that metaphor? Possibly. Um, you know, there, there are a series of things that we still have to walk through the Taiwanese election in January and then our own election in November. Um, you know, how will that change China's calculus and, and how they view Taiwan and, and their broader security concerns? But, you know, at the margin, at least looking at how defense stocks behaved, they really didn't do much last week. Uh, they're really not doing much today. And I think that's completely appropriate if, uh, you know, if the APEC um, uh summit is something that people have been concerned about or that somehow, you know, there was going to be this vast improvement in U.S. US China relations that would somehow diminish the outlook for U.S. defense spending and, and the labeling of China as a pacing threat. No, none of that has changed. Um, let's uh, go to uh, the notion of the defense industrial base and America's industrial base uh, as a uh, deterrent. We've uh, heard Secretary Kendall say that. We've had her Air Force Secretary Kendall say that, as well as uh, other uh, leaders. I've written that the capacity to build and build quickly and satisfy needs quickly uh, is what gives it deterrent teeth, right? It's not that you did an AUKUS. It becomes deterrent when you start delivering nuclear attack submarines. Until then, it actually not particularly clear what it means if it's delivering you capability in 2024. It's better, I suppose, than 2100, but still maybe not as good as if you're doing it in, say, 2025 or 2027, right? From you know, walk us through your thinking about well, it's just the a, whole idea of, you know, of this strategy. Well, the first thing I haven't seen much, if any. Um, academic research on this. I mean, has anybody really tried to codify, you know, what what would defense industrial capacity look like? You know, how does that work to deter um, or dissuade uh, countries from going to war against other countries? I mean, I, I, I go poke around Google Scholar. I just haven't seen anything. It may exist, but but I haven't found it. And then, you know, I wrote about this in my Sunday night note. Um, you know, if you look at the United States in 1939, 1940, um, you know, the, the very significant changes in U.S. defense posture in that era did not dissuade uh, Japan from attacking the U.S. in Pearl Harbor in the Philippines or the British or Dutch in, um, in Asia in December 1941. You know, you can go back to, you know, um, President Roosevelt's address to Congress in May uh, 1940, where he called for the production of 50,000 uh, military and naval planes. And then these two supplemental appropriations acts in June and uh, September of 1940, where, you know, we basically funded a lot of the Navy that we subsequently fielded um, in 1943 and 1944. And, and you could argue, well, those were pretty important signals um, that we were moving ahead with an expansion of our industrial base. But they didn't dissuade 
uh, Japan or Germany from from uh, attacking or declaring war in the United States. And so I think it kind of gets back to this. You've got to put you've got to field stuff, not just talk about your latent defense industrial base capacity to to eventually field stuff. And, you know, maybe going back to history, you know, had the U.S. moved two or three years earlier, had, had you know, the, the public not been in such an isolationist move. Um, may, maybe some of these actions uh, could have been deterred, but you know that's kind of an academic exercise. But but again, kind of fast forwarding this today, it's nice to talk about industrial base capacity. But I think it's going to be much more important to talk about well, how can you get stuff fielded in twenty twenty five or twenty twenty six? Maybe going back to these you know comments I just made a minute or two ago about Taiwan, and frankly, you know what what else could come out of Russia Ukraine if if that continues to sputter along. Do, do you think that talks like this actually, or measures like this, encourage the Chinese to act maybe sooner, right? A little bit of the Japanese uh, calculation, right? If we're going to do something, we've got to do it in this window, uh, not to talk about windows, as opposed to waiting later, because they'll be a lot stronger. Of course, if they're a lot stronger, they can also kick you out and take back whatever it is you've taken, right? right? Well, that, and that's an open question, Vaga, but I think, you know, the, the competition between the United States and Japan is, you know, people have to remember that in, in I think, 1940, you know, the U.S. GDP was about 10 times uh, Japan's and Japan was able to basically match the United States in you know, the late 1930s, 1940, 41, because it was spending the equivalent amount of defense as the United States. But once 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 the war started and you started tapping into that latent GDP power, you know, it was horrible and tragic. It took a couple of years for it to end, but um, you know, there was something that had been inevitability about about the outcome, at least in the U.S.-Japan contest. And the problem with China, I think, is okay. It's the world's largest manufacturing economy. Um, the U.S. is not going to be able to match China on a, a pound for pound basis um, in, from a defense industrial base standpoint. Yeah, if you if you think about a global defense industrial base strategy that ties in India and Europe, um, you know, and Japan, Korea, then I think that's a more potent deterrent to China. But China could easily, you know, take the same uh, sheet from the United States. So we're gonna we're gonna build our defense industrial base as a uh, as a deterrent to the U.S. So. Um, you know, I, I think maybe the other point, you kind of have to be careful about what you declare here. Um, maybe, right. maybe there's some things that are that are better left done and not said or touted. Uh, and we've got about 30 seconds. Uh, it is a little bit of an abbreviated week, uh, given that uh, pretty much everybody is checking out uh, by uh, Wednesday, certainly for the Thanksgiving holiday and likely not working on Friday. But anyway, give us a quick walkthrough on what the audience ought to be paying attention to over the next couple of days. Well, there are a couple of think tank events. Wilson Center was doing one on the uh, 21st on the world in wartime and Russia's influence in Central Asia. Um, Royal United Services Institute was holding a uh, November 23rd event on delivering air and space capabilities uh, with a senior leader from the RAF. Um, there's Chatham House is doing a November 22nd event on how land competition shapes geopolitics. Um, Ryan Metal, which I'm sure Sash will probably talk about uh, on your, your Sunday show, is holding a Capital Markets Day uh, today and tomorrow. And, you know, I'll be interested to see what they say about not just 
you know, the vectors in European defense spending, how they're overcoming some of these bottlenecks. But, you know, what, what are some of the incremental opportunities in Ukraine and Europe and even in the United States? Um, Roy Mattel has got a, a position on the XM30 program and the common uh, tactical truck uh, program. So, um, you know, they've been an interesting company to watch as um, they've kind of changed and evolved uh, in recent years. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Hope you guys have a terrific Thanksgiving and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Same to you, Vago, and all your listeners.